of God's holy and inerrant word as we find it in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, equip us this day. We take on this armor, even as we hear it preached. Let us have this be a moment, O God, of faith as we apprehend and claim for our own the full armor of God, praying in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of us can't be bothered to wage warfare. After all, we are busy mothers, overtaxed fathers, or if we're just doing the two people in the house thing, we got people elsewhere that we're worrying about, and then we got our own household, and we got work, and we might not be retired, but if we are, are retired, how come we're still so busy? And when we hear a scripture that charges us to stand, therefore, and having done all to stand, and charges us to gird our waist with truth, we comment to ourselves, I've had enough of girdles, maybe for a wedding party, but certainly not every day. I'm not girding up for anybody. The point here is that this spiritual warfare teaching from Ephesians 6 sounds so constricting. We're supposed to gird ourselves with the belt. So confining. Like, why can't I just live my life? Do I really need to be on my guard all the time, girding myself up for battle? Or we may wonder, isn't all this talk of putting on the whole armor of God a vision of Christianity, which is a rather a little bit militaristic, too confrontational? Aren't we meant to love one another? Well, yes, actually, we are meant to love one another. And the conflict narrative does not contradict that love narrative. The battle is a battle of the gospel of Christ's love against the hate of the enemy, the devil. See, the devil wanted to exalt himself to the highest place. Isaiah 14, 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And the Most High said, uh-uh, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And ever since then, Lucifer has been angry with God and angry with his people. You see this in the Garden of Eden when the seed of the serpent is set against the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, gained the victory through his gospel of love. You must recall, his first coming was not a coming of judgment. It's in the Bible. 
For I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world, through him, might be saved. Now we do proclaim his love preeminently with the warning of judgment. His first coming is in love to save souls. His second coming is to judge the wicked. But now we are drawn into this battle because we belong to the Lord. And the devil hates the Lord and he wars against us. We are commanded even in this text in 6.15 to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Warfare with the devil does not mean we take on the devil's anger and his methods. The issue is not militarism with us using physical weapons like the Muslims do. Paul teaches us rather that the people we are uh, seeing around us, we're not wrestling with them. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are uh, contending with the armor of God against the principalities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And so we trust Romans 13, we trust the king, we trust the politicians, we trust the warfare of our armed troops to deal with matters of state, the warfare against Muslim extremism and totalitarian dictatorship, which storms in our world right now. But we have got to identify ourselves as believers in Christ's church and simply face the fact that we are in a warfare already. The schemes of the devil, which we considered in verse 11, namely, who can I trust? Because he's a deceiver. He masquerades as an angel of light. Who can I trust? He convinces us to mistrust God as not being generous. When the devil lied to Eve saying, oh, you mean he doesn't allow you to eat of all the trees? And we mistrust God. God, how can I trust God? He's not good to me. And he twists scripture, telling Jesus to bow down to him so that he would give Jesus the whole world. These are schemes, and they're set up against us. You're already in a warfare, but you may be oblivious to it. You may know it very well, however. You may have been hurt terribly already thus far in your life by people who claim to be Christians but have wormed their way into the church and for whom there is no evidence of a life changed by God. Now is the time to put on the sufficient armor from God that we are not hurt further by the wiles of the devil. And you have such an armor from him. First, it is an armor of God and Christ that is sufficient for the saints. Second, verses 14 and 15, this armor is truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace, all of which prepare you for war. You are willing to wage spiritual warfare because you're convicted by the truth. You're wearing what's necessary as you go into the battle, namely righteousness. You walk into that warfare with the gospel of peace. And the third point is verses 16 and 17. This armor is protective and proactive. And it is, has a faith that wards off the evil one. 
It is a salvation that protects us as we believe the true gospel. It is the word of God, which is the sword of the Holy Spirit, doing God's work in our life. So first, we see an armor of God and of Christ that is sufficient for the saints. You see, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord himself is revealed in the Bible as wearing an armor. Hear these words of Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And yet we see as we look at Isaiah 59 and 15, if you turn there with me to page 657, if you are using a pew Bible, Isaiah 59, verse 15, that somehow the armor of light has become a, 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 a armor. 59 verse 15, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now, the normal dress of God is this garment of light. As the great German evangelical commentators, Kyle and Delitzsche put it, I quote, according to the scriptural view, Jehovah is never unclothed, but the free radiation of his own nature shapes itself into a garment of light. Light is the robe he wears, according to Psalm 104, verse 2. When the prophet here in Isaiah 59 describes the garment of light as changed into a suit of armor, this is understood in the same sense as when the apostle in Ephesians speaks of a Christian's full armor, unquote. And so what Delich is saying to us is that the armor of light is, becomes specified into particular pieces of armor as we see the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, in verse 17. And this armory does not come from somewhere else, but is an expression of his holy nature. God's own holy nature produces this armor of righteousness and salvation. And then he manifests it according to his sovereign will for his saints, that his own people can take that armor of righteousness and the helmet of salvation unto them for their good. 
And we see not only does the Lord, Yahweh, take on this armor, but we also see the Messiah. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, Isaiah 11 verse 1, page 613, Here's a revelation of the promised Messiah. See there in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's an allusion to Jesus being the son of David, son of King David, who was the offspring of Jesse. This is messianic theology at its best. And we see then in verse 5 about this Messiah Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Waste. This son of God is truly God, very God of very God. But we also learn in this text, he is the promised one. And so these revelations of the Lord's armor and Christ's armor have a reference to the peace which follows. In verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and so on. And this is a peace which we look forward after Christ's second coming. And the point here is not to find a one-to-one -one correspondence between Ephesians 6 and the Old Testament, but rather to say that God has worn this armor already the Messiah has worn it already. And if it is good enough for them, it is a blessing to us. The references to the armor go on when the Lord is declared in Psalm 18:2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. We are seeing these references to ideas in Ephesians 6. The shield is God himself, and when we take up the shield of faith, we're taking up God as our protection against evil. And finally, we see the word of God is indeed even here in Isaiah. If you turn ahead to Isaiah 49 and verse 2, you will see a reference to the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. It says in Isaiah 49, 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is the Messiah. When he spoke the word, it was like a sword coming out of its, his mouth. And it was living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And I ask you today, how has he discerned your heart? Is he discerning your thoughts and intents of the heart, as it says in Hebrews 4.12? Are you gaining a sense that we need to be in a battle, that we should not let the devil have a foothold in our life? Have you come in this series of sermons about the armor of God to a greater conviction, not to let the devil have a foothold in your life. My good friend Steve McLean at Argyle Press was adamenta upon this point. He would not frequent one of the popular convenience stores because they sold pornographic magazines. And he didn't want that influence in his community where he felt as a pastor of the largest church, he had to take a stand 
against the foothold of the devil, which is represented by pornography. And so for his own protection, for the protection of the people whom he served, he was adamant about not buying from that company. We need to be making decisions about where are we going to let the influence of the devil into our life and how are we going to stop it? Perhaps for us, it's an angry defensiveness against secular elements in our society where we act like we are threatened and we don't know how we are to respond to the attacks of the enemy. So we get upset, we get frustrated. Um, you know, we listen to WGY talk radio or maybe we listen to NPR, whichever is our predilection, and, and we just get upset by what we're hearing rather than considering the truth. And we don't want to walk in the flesh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We need to engage with the truth. And that brings us to our next point, verses 14 and 15. We need to maintain a certain objectivity without getting into emotionalism. Instead of just getting disgusted with the world and its perversion, we need to speak to people about the order of creation. God creating man and woman, male and female. We need to talk to people about the sanctity of life, that men and women are to protect the most vulnerable, the babies, and the elderly in the nursing homes. We need to engage at the level of truth from the Bible. And we see that this belt of truth is the first thing that we're supposed to put on. It's the first piece of armor mentioned. And as a belt, it not only holds up the trousers, it also is an anchor at the bottom for the breastplate of righteousness, which has straps which go over the shoulder, but it can't be flopping around. It's anchored to the belt. And furthermore, we see that it is also the place from which the sword of the Spirit hangs when it is placed into the sheath, which is anchored to the belt. So this belt is preparatory. It's the first thing, and it speaks to willingness. Are we willing to walk forward and enter battle? It's shown as to whether we gird ourselves, whether we'll, we're willing to be constrained even by this heavy belt which takes us into warfare. Well, it's the belt of truth, and the truth has to motivate us to go into the warfare. You see, truth means that there is a congruence between the word of God written and the reality that is out there. There is a congruence and a matching up between God's history of creation and the creation that we see out there. There is a matchup between the account of the fall into sin and the mess that we see out there, the fallenness and brokenness and rebellion in our world. And there is a congruence between this story of salvation and the church that we see and the Christians around the world which are doing beautiful things 
to bless the world and bring people to himself and to do good works in the name of Jesus Christ. So the belt of the truth is the motivation for us to say, I am going to enter this battle. And when Martin Luther was in that battle and he was writing of the doctrines of grace, he was criticized. The Pope wanted him arrested and Charles I uh, was against him. And he stood there being commanded to renounce his writings and he said, Here stay ich und kann nicht anders. Here I stand, I can do no other. He stood firm on the truth and he was willing to set his life up for the battle that would come when he knew the enemies would continue to come after him. Our motivation is the truth. And when we are motivated by that, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. It protects our life itself. It protects our heart. It protects our torso. And it establishes our spiritual life going into eternity. Now, this is not righteousness in merely an ethical sense. It is wonderful to see righteousness in action in an ethical sense. But this is the righteousness of God. And I'd like to take you back to 5917, where we read that the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate. Paul knew his Bible. Paul knew, and he chose in this case to use the very same symbolism of breastplate and righteousness. This tells us that this righteousness is the righteousness of God, which we receive by faith. Whatever was to my prophet, Paul writes in Philippians 3, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to pray in the morning, Lord, I am a sinner. Clothe me again as you have in the past with the righteous robe of your righteousness, which is my shield today. Believe the gospel. Have you been saved? Have you believed? So to have your standing with God secure. Only when we are secure ourselves in the righteousness of God, have we the ability to take part in the warfare that is before us all. Come to Christ, believe in him today, and then wear that righteousness as a position of dignity and responsibility. We also, verses 14 and 15, walk into the spiritual warfare, the gospel of peace, which means that they're wearing a, a kind of shoes, they're shodding themselves with shoes that mobilize the spreading of the good news as we saw it prayed for in this community and we see the pictures of the missionaries here representing India and representing uh, 
work, uh, workmen all around the world. We, we see it of, of the ministry to Muslims. We see it of the ministry that is even done on Long Island in our uh, place. We have these missionary pictures to say that we're shotting ourselves by our giving every Sunday morning to let the gospel go out. And when we do that, we are actually living into one of the wonderful statements of our congregation's uh, DNA. It's on their website. It's been, as I look back in the records, it's been part of this church going back to the first decade, the, the nine, 1990s. And it says this, We welcome you to join us as we worship God together, learn from his word, spend time with one another, and minister to those in need, showing and telling others of Jesus Christ's love displayed in the gospel. And that showing and telling has been going on for 33 years. When Jenny Delgado's freezer was cleaned out by Jack and Marilyn Mary. When we saw the youth group with John Stovall carrying wood out of those woods across a pack of one foot of snow out into the parking lot and onto my trailer and dropped off at the home of Kevin Dean when they were running short on heat. We have been showing it even in our everyday interactions of sending a sympathy card perhaps to the Davises, uh, to, to the Smiths on the passing of Carlton Smith. Uh, when we are, excuse me, a sympathy card to the Smiths on the passing of Carlton Davis, you are showing it in your everyday life, in your generosity with one another, caring for one another's kids as you have particular needs, living the life of love so that we can then tell of Christ's love displayed in the gospel. So this is a willingness to show and tell others of Christ's love. And it's important that we tell because if we don't tell people ever, then it just looks like we're doing good middle-class things who are paying it forward in a secular sense when in fact... It is Christ who has changed our life and has given us the motivation to love because he first loved us. And when we do this, we come to the third point of the sermon and we see that if we're preparing to enter warfare because we have that truth and we know it motivates us because that's reality, we don't want to be living in a dream world. And when we realize that we have been accounted righteous by faith with his righteousness, so that gives us the courage to go for it because our future is settled in heaven. And when we have prepared by studying the word and being together as a church family to go out and share the gospel of peace, well then the fire starts. The fiery arrows, which we see Described there in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I was talking to someone once who said when they found a good church, that's when the attacks started upon their family. And I have to say that when you become a member, it's almost like getting a target on your back because you have stated 
I am part of Christ's church. I am dedicated to Jesus, and I will serve here. And the devil often picks people out for attack. This is the moment where we need to take up the shield of faith and to quench the fiery darts of the devil. That shield of faith is nothing other than claiming by faith the protection of the Lord. The Lord is my shield, and by faith I appropriate his presence in my defense. I trust that God is good. Some of the accusations that can come against us from the devil make us question our faith. The devil is described in Revelation 12, 16, and he is symbolized by the dragon. And it says in 12, 16 of Revelation that he was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's us. We're the church who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The devil's hateful. He wants to discourage us. And he wants us to think that we have no future with God. But as the famous chorus says, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide, hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way. He will make a way. I urge you to believe on this Christ, that he is making a roadway in the wilderness. He is bringing refreshment in the desert. And his word still remains. Indeed, he will do something new today. Come to Christ and trust him. What Martin Luther said when the accusations of the devil came, when he said, you have no part in Christ, look at your life. Martin Luther said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. And what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there shall I be also. Here is the gospel of God's grace, which we proclaim by faith, protecting us from the accusation of the devil. But we also have a watch care over what we believe. We take on a helmet of salvation, which protects the place where we think. We are watchful over what we believe. And the helmet in the <coughs> imagery of the Old Testament and the New is in the case of God, the helmet is a helmet of God's glory. That the salvation which he has won for his people glitters like a shiny helmet from the far. It's the highest thing in the soldier's body and it glitters bringing glory to God. But it also, in our case, protects us from heresy, protects us from all those forms of false teaching we've been learning about in Sunday school. I encourage you to come to this class and the next one which will follow. And I urge you to, to be those who are equipped against heresy and against 
false scriptural teachings, such as bad teaching from men like Douglas Wilson, who claim to be reformed, but is merely play-acting reformed theology to gather a crowd saying that as soon as you baptize a baby, well, that baby is 100% positively saved, and now we've got to stuff bread and wine down his throat because he should be taking the Lord's Supper. What a chaotic belief, and totally to be rejected by Reformed and all Christians. I just want you to know, as an example, we need to protect our mind because what goes into our mind goes down into our heart and our heart begins to live it out. And my family describes me for me the utter chaos in a church in New Hampshire which has drunk deep at the well of Doug Wilson's teaching. I say this not because maybe you don't even know who Doug Wilson is. I'm saying you need to be prepared against false teaching. And you are prepared most of all by wielding Verses 16 and 17, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It is, the Word of God is the sword, and it is given us to us by the Spirit. For as we learned in catechism on Friday night with the little boys, where does, God's, where does the Bible come from? Holy men of God who were taught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired these men. They taught them what to say. And the Holy Spirit has inspired the word. But then on our side, the Holy Spirit is illumining the word. The Spirit gave us the word. But now that we read it and hear it, the Holy Spirit is illumining us so we can understand it and grasp it and claim it as our own. So it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And here is the protection we need in combat with the devil. Jesus was the Son of God, but he quoted Scripture against the devil. Deuteronomy 8.3, you don't eat by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the devil tempted him to seek glory for himself, he corrected the devil with God's word. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't go jumping off the temple. Don't put God to the test. And when tempted by the devil to worship false idols, we quote scripture as Jesus did. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You are in a warfare as surely as Carlton Davis. Look at this picture from from the website. Here's a young man. Here's the bloom of American fighter pilots at the end of World War II. He was in a battle and he came home. He survived. He shot down Japanese jet uh, planes and he was saved when he came back. God spared his life so that he could be born again from above in the late 40s and lead his family to trust in Christ. You see, you're in a battle, and you need to face it. And we need to be those who do battle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And if you're wondering if you're going to show up in a Frank Peretti novel next month, I don't know. You could. I'm just saying to you, demons are real. You need to 
put on the armor of God, but I want you to remember this, that you are going to be well as you trust in Christ, as you put on this armor, as you do what the word says, you will be protected from the evil one. Refuse to open yourself to evil through contemplating known sin. Give no foothold to the devil or his demons. You see, Judas did. He was a covetous man. He stole from the money box of the disciples. And it says in the gospel, according to John, that, this, that Satan entered him. As a man who was not a true believer, he was possessed. I ask you today, as a true Christian, not to worry about being possessed, but be concerned about being oppressed. Be concerned about opening up any entry spots and come to Christ in your morning devotions, in your daily walk, claiming explicitly this armor of God, which was good enough for the Lord and good enough for the Messiah, and it shall protect you in this battle. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come this day needing your presence. We are in a battle whether we like it or not. And I ask you, Lord, to equip this particular congregation with the armor necessary, not only to survive, but to thrive in this battle, that we would know our righteousness in you and know the word even to the protection of our minds and our hearts, and that we would step forward boldly with the gospel of God's peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.